Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Masters of the Air Part 3 is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Ariel, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, my co-pilot, it's DM Philly, a.k.a. Rich. What's up, Rich? Uh, nothing, Ariel. I'm psyched. I'm ready. I'm back into the air to talk about the Masters of it. I'm, I'm psyched to be diving into Week 3. Yes, absolutely. I cannot wait, selfishly, to get into the D of this episode i will say i would have had a hundred things on a list of what i expected these people to start talking about at random times and DD would have not been on like a list of 200 things perhaps uh but you are the reg- re- resident dungeon master so i'm excited to get to that question with you i won't i won't do it here now i think let's save it um but uh let's talk about the episode in general we get uh we only got the one episode this week which frankly that's cool i'm i'm okay with that i'm okay, i'm i'm happy with the normalization of the one episode a week finally um how did you feel about this episode overall I thought it was great. I felt like a big uh, VFX episode. And we had talked a little bit about whether or not the special effects were going to work for us because it's such Mm -hmm. like there's so much more present, I think, than they were in the previous series. I mean, certainly Band of Brothers of the Pacific, not without their share of like VFX shots, but just by the sheer nature of these massive flights. I mean, we couldn't rally together a third of this many B-17s in one place in the world anymore, Mm -hmm. let alone to get like, a hundred of them flying in formation, you know? So I thought it was really big. I felt the spectacle of it, Ariel. A couple of those shots I think are going to stay with me. Um, I really liked it. I feel like we're into the attrition of it. I mean, some of the same critiques, I guess, that mm-hmm. we talked about over the last couple of weeks. It's really hard to track our individual pilots, our individual crewmen. I think especially mm-hmm. once we've got them up in the planes and, and oxygen masks, uh, there's a lot of uniformity to them that makes it uh-huh. really hard to like emotionally resonate with the individual stories but i think that the overall story of the company and the like losses that they're incurring and the hardship that they're flying into every time is coming across in like this giant kind of spectacle fashion so in that way it feels like grand and operatic and it feels like big in terms of the weight of all of it i really liked it uh the flight to africa i wasn't seeing and like oh my gosh did we already lose our boy here uh, no oh my god not kurt i refuse to believe kurt? it i refuse to believe it uh kyogen did not dance whatever i won't spoil Saltburn, but he did not dance in Saltburn so that he could die here in a plane i'm so upset and i love i do love though as upset that it makes me i do love that it's like it seems like 
he is most likely perished. A lot of that people on that plane, but it's not impossible for him to have survived in the front of the plane. I do think um, while I'm talking about how how the individuality of the stories feels hard to convey, given the format and just Mm -hmm. the scale of the story that we're telling when it comes down to it, like the story of Curtis, you really feel it, man, because this guy already had like the one rough landing, the like the loyalty to his Mm co-pilot, the desperation of jump with me. I'm getting way ahead of the game, but you feel that weight. And I think that we, like the other men of the company, are left with this uncertainty we just can't know just like they just can't know as they land these planes in africa they have no idea what the real trail of devastation left behind them is and they're gonna have to wait longer than a week i imagine ariel before they're back in like sunny old england like looking at a casualty list of what really happened right so in that sense like super effective you know Mm -hmm. yeah i assume the same that it's gonna be it's gonna be longer than they would like it to i mean they saw all the people uh, who were like, it's a little bit of a, of a lose lose, right? Like some of the planes exploded and were blown up. Some of the planes, the people were able to get out, but like, then we're running into the situation of what are you actually parachuting into? And this isn't like a band of brothers paratrooper situation where you're with a lot of people you are with less than 10 people probably, uh, who have, you know, parachuted with you into wherever you are. And we get a little bit of that with the character Quinn that we'll get to. Um, But it is, it is crazy to watch this plan that they have not go to plan. But uh, before we get into all of that, I want to take a moment and talk about a very, you know, controversial topic for a lot of TV watchers. It is the, the, the idea of the opening credits and are they effective here? Um, I will say just, and this is, I think this will, to use a, to use a plain metaphor, I think this will dovetail nicely with you, with what you had already said about, uh, the special effects. I think there is like, for me, a little tiny bit of a, of an emotional disconnect, right. That occurs when there are so many of these fantastical things happening, but they don't always look a hundred percent real. And I, I couldn't help but think i mean you mentioned george lucas last time and you know he was such a fan of of certain wars and a certain time period and it reflects in star wars but like similarly that he was like i want to wait a certain amount of time till technology gets better so that we can do the prequels i wondered if they ever wanted to do this series before and they kind of like held off on doing it because of this special effects issue That's such a fascinating question. So I was doing some research on Masters of Air. The first kind of word on the street about the band getting back together here at Amblin producing this, the third part in the kind of trilogy of series, was Mm -hmm. back in 2012. So we're already 12 years back as we're in January 2024 looking at the premiere. I mean, they started filming 2021. So they certainly had their hooks in this idea quite a while ago and were driving forward with it. 2019, Apple TV like confirms that they've got the development deal and the the distribution rights so i'm really curious about that as well i mean um spielberg certainly known to push the boundaries of what is possible on the screen i watched Mm -hmm. some behind the scenes featurettes Uh, i've read a couple of articles and i saw just some of the production elements that they used in terms of like the way they practically shot these scenes Mm -hmm. that are especially in the plane right like they aren't in the volume which is uh the notorious 
kind of 3D production stage of LED screens used in Disney. But it's that same kind of technology. Like for a lot of these cockpit shots, we just have the disassembled cockpit up on like a a boom rig, a wiggle rig, so they can move it around with a huge super crisp LED screen in front of it for like the visuals out of the windshield, you know. So I think in certain ways they used as much practically as they could, but you have to wonder about the limitations of the technology. Um, Mm -hmm. I was talking to you a little bit before we pushed record here, but I read a couple of other articles, one of them from airandspaceforces.com, and it was written by David Rosen. totally legit. It sounds very legit. Uh, I think it is legit. We do have a Space Force in the United States. If that's anybody out there thinks I'm memeing, Um, this is not George Lucas. But Mm -hmm. in this article, they talked about a bunch of things, one of which was it was it was kind of a discussion with a air air force pilot uh like kind of very accredited one one who's got i believe a phd his doctorate in um world war ii bombing studies and like bombing campaigns across military history wow. and it was a really important one it's a very specific field but doctorates are sometimes i've discovered right wow. and this guy just talked about how many of the details are great in masters of air but he did critique the CGI, and one of his major notes, Ariel, <laughs> he was, said it didn't look real. This doesn't look real. He just said that, like, it's very modernized. That the the angle of ascents for these B seventeens are far too steep. That the like takeoff speeds are far too steep. And the big thing that he critiqued is when they're flying in formation like this. Mm-hmm. He's like, they're making it look like a smooth satin ride, like you're in right. the 2024 Cadillac in the right. back seat. And the reality is, like, you're flying through a nightmare of chop even before the anti-aircraft fire starts up when you have a formation this big the planes in front of you are throwing such turbulence backwards uh, that like every one of these planes is like a rattling bobbling frantic yeah. kind of nightmare and he talked about the element of like each of the planes being alive to the men back mm-hmm. to that kind of like but clevin moment that we got early on in those yeah, first few episodes sure. that he's like they really each have a personality they have sounds within them and smells from the fuel the emissions the gunpowder the like weaponry that um some of that gets lost with the cgi he talked Mm -hmm. about it's a little too smooth too clean too polished too easy Ariel. you know yeah i think Kraz's fort especially probably has a very strong smell yeah um those those poor nighttime crew especially with 1940s cleaning products work exactly work really hard to try to get rid of um yeah i think it's it is interesting and you know the i i brought up the special effects in regards to the opening credits specifically because I think the opening credits for sure are inciting emotion within me. Like you, in my estimation, I am not a musician or I have been at different times in in school, but uh, I'm not a actual musician. So I could be wrong, but they sound like French horns to me uh, in the beginning, the opening credits, which are very uh, regal sounding. It's a lot of, you know, it always reminds me of, of Lord of the Rings, it just sounds larger than life almost. And I think that matches, you know, these images that we're getting of people of all these planes in the sky. Um, and then the violins come in and they, you know, they do the rest of the emotional work, but there's a way in which to finally bring all these points together. It just feels a little too 
artificial and clean. Like I mm -hmm. kind of agree with with the way that uh, Dr. Plain Science is putting it in the sense of like, I want to, and I don't know what the solution is to be clear, because like you said, it's not like they can actually film these things, even on the smaller scale that they can then multiply. But I just, uh, I don't know, maybe the solution is what they, what the English people are saying, even when, before he got punched in the face last week of like, you should be flying at night and the CGI would look better. <laughs> It's true. I think it would look better. There's a reason that we cried so often about Game of Thrones being too dark, Ariel, you know? Um, <laughs> uh -huh. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think that the opening credits, first of all, very long. I've seen a couple of critiques of like, man, these are long. And I will say they do feel very <laughs> long. True. Uh, the true. first, I watched them through the first few episodes and it didn't really hit me until this one. That said, just to evoke George Lucas again and, and the great John Williams, the master composer that he is, you know, the Star Wars score is so critical to mm -hmm. that original trilogy and as we're now looking at star wars media that's being created and produced in like 2023 2024 you hear these kind of it evokes that classic john williams score without often being like exactly it without mm -hmm. using john williams music and i think that that's really effective and in that way i really felt masters of air like calling to band of brothers mm -hmm. across time ariel it's yeah. like bird calls in the woods almost like these <laughs> are not exactly the same uh -huh. but they're definitely like they're the same species i could feel right. that said I, I did feel like they're very grand and big yeah. and they are not nearly as like emotionally resonant for me with like the individuality and part of that is getting to sit with band of brothers for 20 something years and like right. watching it over again and again that score and those opening credits are so iconic to me uh i may be like indicting myself but honestly i don't even remember the opening score to the pacific like I can't, <laughs> I can't like pull it up in in the jukebox just, of my mind. You know this. I just binged it recently so that we could podcast about it, and I also don't remember. And I think a little bit of it is probably because we've both watched Band of Brothers a thousand times. So that's like yeah. really yeah, like yeah, yeah. rooted in there. But I've seen the Pacific enough that like I should be able to, to call it up. Yeah. And I just can't. I think I'll remember Masters of Air. Right. Uh -huh. um, yes. Look, I'm yes. not skipping through it yet, but we'll report <laughs> back episode nine. Like it may be a little bit like, all right, man. We got there's a lot of planes, you know. Right, right. It's like I get it. I get it. Maybe you can shorten these. Um, yeah, it's it's I actually really agree, and I wasn't gonna bring it up, but because you did now, I'm gonna be brave and agree with you. I think we got we have to. That's what it harkened it harkened back to Band of Brothers for me in a way that the Pacific didn't. And I think you can say, yes, the, the point that you made of like us having watched it a million times is true and is fair, but also I think at the end of the day, I kind of remember what I felt the first time I watched that Band of Brothers opening credits. And this is like not not even close to that, but feels closer than the Pacific. I don't remember feeling any uh, emotion, unfortunately, when I watched the opening credits of the Pacific. I prob probably after a while I skipped them, if I'm being honest. But um, this feels like to, to I think to both of our points, this feels so much like them trying to do something that will 
feel bigger than it actually is, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I mean, that's part of in this one specific article that I was referencing. Part of what they talked about is like, look, we're not trying to give doctoral level, you know, research studies here. This is entertainment, right? And, yes. and that's part of what we talked about in our preview pod. Like uh-huh. we're we're trying to give like a popularized kind of uh compelling entertainment story in, in what we're doing with this. So I'm with you. I do think the CGI, you know, just by its sheer nature and the fact that it's a $200 million production. Mm-hmm. It certainly is like an expensive work. And I, I, I appreciate that they put so much into that detail, but it's not like a movie production. That's got a hundred million, an extra hundred million dollar budget just for the VFX, right? Like mm-hmm. it could probably be sharper, tighter, cleaner, and that's okay. Uh, I, I'm like, okay with it for what it is. It does like root me back in that it's transportive uh, is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get to. Like, I do feel like I'm being pulled into this other world with it and i appreciate that no for sure and i think um i think there's a level to me having been spoiled by the insanely amazing visual effects of the lord of the Rings series that amazon did like the tears streaming down my face within five minutes it's just like the beauty of this world anyway so i've been spoiled and uh not everything can can look the same but uh, okay, let's get into the episode proper. We didn't call this out before for episodes one and two, but we have the same director for all three episodes, and it is none other than Carrie Joji Fukunaga, which is a big name in TV um, and and in some movies a little bit too. As starts to get uh starts to get bigger, but um. I just wanted to call that out because that's important. And that's another, not a, not a similarity from the other series, but certainly like another big name that this series is able to get because of the like prestige surrounding it and the team that's making it. Oh yeah. It's a true detective uh, director we got going mm-hmm. on right there. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Um, where he first uh, hit the scene or at least hit the news, if not hit the scene. I think uh, it's really good to bring the directors in for these arcs. I feel like it's, mm-hmm. and especially to like have some connectivity thematically and through like the vision of these first three episodes. It was a thing I talked about a lot with Andor and I really like focused in on as somebody that talks about a lot of TV. I'm probably not concerned enough with the individual directors of episodes. And I really honed in on it, talking about Andor and their kind of narrative structure and the use of directors over these three arc trajectories for their mini series and i think that there's like something effective uh, thematically and tonally and the, the, the like conveying all of that from the same perspective you know mm-hmm. um okay so this was written by john orloff the aforementioned and we get very quickly the scene with the our our known pilots, some of them unknown to us at least name wise but they look familiar to us uh especially without their masks we basically get this stat of this mission that they're about to go on, which will be 376 heavy bombers and 200 fighters, which is, at the time, the largest air armada ever assembled in the history of mankind. That's a lot. That's a lot of planes and a lot of people on the planes. And it seems like even the the matching you know, top brass that is going to be on the mission is more than usual they don't have usually this many uh non-flying officers on the planes and uh people take notice of that 
Yeah, it's a really big deal. I mean, um, just the nature of the U.S. war machine, right? Uh, at this point, we're pretty early on. Part of the reason that the British RAF like stopped the daytime bombings is, again, we talked about it last time, but they'd been involved in like a four-year extended conflict with the Germans. Like yeah. They were deep into losses beyond what we could really conceptualize. So at the beginning of World War II, the U.S. Army is like a pittance of what it will become by the end. I think there's like 26,000 troops by the end of World World War II, we're up to 2.4 million. Like we really ramped up the war machine. And mm -hmm. part of that was in the assemblage of planes. Like I think at the beginning of the war, again, I, I did a lot of homework here because this is such uh, invisible information to be aerial. Mm -hmm. Like we have this sense, and I think certainly in the modern era of the U.S. like American armed forces, the U.S. military as the Air Force, right? We think mm -hmm. of these planes. We think of uh, Tom Cruise and like the Top Gun fighters. And like I grew up in the '80s as a big GI Joe kid of like mm -hmm. the Blackbird, the SR-17 Blackbird, and the stealth bomber, like these big fancy planes, and they're bigger and they're more expensive. But in a certain way, that demands much more in the production level like at the point in the 1940s the united states was an industrial nation we built cans and and pots and pans we had factories that could develop these relatively simple pieces of equipment compared to the technology of today so we really like shifted gears and started building planes man um i, I like at the beginning of the war we have uh, 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 1,200 bombers and fighters combined. By the end, we have 12,700, right? And this is like wow. a real turning point mission. I do a little bit of like homework here. At this point, I believe we're in like June of 43. They mm -hmm. go on this particular mission. They take these catastrophic losses, which there's really fascinating kind of German records from the German fighter pilot side of like their experience in these same aerial combats. And and it really like halts us in our tracks a little bit and resets us. But to imagine these boys in the same way we talk about band of brothers, like they're going to go to get on a plane for the first time just to jump off it. These guys are going up in these armadas that have never been seen before or really since on this kind of scale of like thousands of planes flying in formation together. Like that's got to be crazy aerial. Like I've been, in a 747 circle in JFK for two hours. And like, that's stressful enough, man, to imagine like <laughs> flying in formation with hundreds of these guys, like, holy cow, dude, it's nuts. Uh -huh. Yeah. that In that situation, you're kind of losing your mind in a different way. And you're not yeah. quite worried about your life as opposed to like yeah. more worry that you'll never get back to it because you're going to be stuck on that plane for the rest of time. Um, but yeah, the, 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 upscaling part of manufacturing i think is for sure an interesting one especially in the context of history and the time we were in after the first war and kind of almost prepping now that there is this second world war almost like the anticipation of we're gonna need these vessels beyond this time and i think you know in a lot of ways we're still we're still living uh under that under that uh kind of line of thinking even though it's much more complicated than that um but speaking of complicated there is a three-prong plan for these fighters and it only works if the timing is exactly right on all three sides phases uh and the idea is they wanted to hit these assembly plans we just talked about this you know the manufacturing 
arm of, of America. They are trying to debilitate the manufacturing infrastructure in Germany. And uh, the kink in the plan is instead of circling back and potentially encountering enemy fire on the way home, not just on the way there, they're going to continue to northern Africa and just land there. And it looks really far on the map. And that's because it is, people. Uh, And it's the idea is the first uh, wave of planes will attack and take like the heavy fire from the German fighters. And then while the German fighters are going back to refuel, the second and third wave will come and hit them while they're not expecting it. Rich, what could go wrong? This plan is flawless. I don't understand. Synchronized watches, Ariel. Remember when they said that in every movie when we were little kids and we were like, why? Why is everybody synchronizing their watches? This is why. Because like timing is everything, right? And you're talking about, we talked a lot about like a bureaucracy, the the bureaucracy of war to certain degrees in the first couple episodes but like mm-hmm. there's something to this to like the bureaucratic failure right we saw in those first couple of the weather delays of like wait 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 we get to yeah. wait we saw it in band of brothers right mm-hmm. d-day getting delayed for fog they're in sunny old england it gets foggy a lot right so so mm-hmm. like this these little issues these very real practical problems that jam them up of the timing it just you can feel it right and again like evoke george lucas i mean the tactics i think they do enough to convey it to a layman but like those are short range fighters they can't be that far from here like the fighters don't have these big giant fuel tanks to be able to fly to africa they roll up and they also like by their very nature you know we get a little bit of it here where buck's gonna start like offloading weight we've seen if you've watched lost you certainly know about offloading weight (laughs) of the aircraft to like get to your destination right but like the reality Uh, is like these fighters needed to be really minimal. So you can only put so much ammo in them. You can only put so much artillery. Like this is also the beginning of what they call underwing rockets. Um, Very fascinatingly, like Germany was so involved in the war at this point, we get like, there was a call out in the first couple episodes of the Messerschmitts. The Messerschmitts were like the main Luftwaffe German air force plane, like fighter bomber, short range bomber that they used. And they were very effective early on because they just had them entrenched and established really well the germans had like this line of of air bases to Mm -hmm. control the line on the western front certainly where we were pressing in in europe really effectively but as they get a little bit deeper into the war they start developing this plane called the fock wolf the ff1 the fw190 and a lot of people talk about it like retroactively as like the most effective plane in World War II. Like the P-51 Mustangs get all the like fanfare. I think that's because like we won and the Mustangs were like a huge part of us winning the war, but they're not in production yet and they're not out there. So like this run, this exact mission, they were going to bomb one of the Fock Wolf like manufacturing centers. That is the place that like this first air group is going in. But the Timing gets all Fubar and they get jammed up. And and even though like the Luftwaffe has to pull back 
to refuel, they manage to absolutely like devastate the hundredth as they come in right here. This is the beginning of where they'll take the name the bloody hundredth and like start incurring their absolute catastrophic casualties. And part of the German strategy that developed is that they would send the Messerschmitts in first to tangle with the American fighter planes. And as the okay. American fighters then started trying to deal with the Messerschmitts, they would save these Focke-Wolf, these F these F FW-190s to come in for the for the for the bombers. And we see that in this episode where like they're like, oh, they're pulling back to refuel, and mm -hmm. everything gets quiet for a second, as then they come in for like the second wave. That's yeah. these like FW-190s ripping stuff apart. It's um it's considered like a major flex point of the like American kind of bombing campaign in world mm -hmm. war two. We end up really kind of like circling the wagons after this um, maneuver and, and like ultimately not regrouping for a couple of months. And then we begin to like really make, make ground in big ways. Okay. Um, these fighters are very anxious which is completely understandable. And they have to wait. You mentioned the fog. And this is where uh, one of the men comes up with the perfect way to spend the time, which is nonsense hypotheticals. And there is a, we are on the road to purgatory, Rich. I am putting the question to you. <laughs> fork in the road. One leads to Valhalla and the other one to hell, a damnation. There is a goblin on each road. One always tells the truth. The other is a tricky little effer. He always lies. What is the one question that you're supposed to ask the goblin? Luckily, um, they're goblins. And personally, I like Charlie Day, like ghouls, Ariel. Uh -huh. I like green ghouls. <laughs> but I do know a lot about goblins. I've done a lot of homework <laughs> relating to goblins. So it's one question, but you have right. to ask both of them to right. like verify the answer. Do you right. know the answer to this? this? Is it one of these riddles that like we've all heard a thousand <laughs> I times? I feel like I've heard it, and I feel yeah. like the answer is right in front of me. It is. Like, I tried to use the clue of like Cross has a guess, and the guy the other guy's like, no, but you are getting closer. You're surprisingly intelligent. <laughs> I'm impressed, which is like the ultimate backhanded compliment. Um, I believe it's it's something to do with uh, the nature of truth. God, that's so vague, esoteric. I mean, like, there's it, it's a, it's a way of asking like something along the lines of like, are you lying or are you telling the truth? There's something about that. I, like I don't know your tactic though of like f that. I don't want to go to Valhalla or hell. I want to hang out on the road with the goblins, man. They're not green ghouls. Why do we have to choose do. at all? Like, yeah, I gotta stand here, here and just discuss philosophy with them about the nature of truth <laughs> for all eternity. That sounds to me like an acceptable purgatory. So, I mean, there's a few ways to like go about it. Mm -hmm. To me, it's like as soon as I heard it, I'm like, God damn it. How do I not immediately know the answer to that question? Mm -hmm. This feels like one of those like seven men with seven cats and seven yeah. wives kind of riddle that like uh -huh. you should just know. You need to know by uh -huh. a certain point in your life. But so I think that the move is you ask both of them which road leads to hell. And so the one who tells uh -huh. the truth will point yeah. at the one over there, the correct road. And then the one who lies will point at 
the one who tells the truth or you ask them which of you will tell me which yeah. road leads to hell yeah. and yeah. like then they'll both verify and corroborate the same one the one who right. tells the truth will say i will show you the road oh. to hell and the one who lies says he will show you the road to hell and right. now you know the answer because you've caught them in a lie right um very I, tricky uh, and I don't think that they, so that the, I don't think that the, the pilots actually ever get it. Aaron. None of them it know. To me that, like, we corroborated in the episode. Spoiler alert, so, they get to Africa. Well, some of them make it to Africa and then they're like, oh, what was the answer? And he's like, I don't know. I was hoping you could tell me. Come on, Graz. You had the whole flight to think about it, man. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. This is wild stuff. I just thought it was so funny. Like, oh my God, how is there basically a D&D uh, riddle in this episode? It's amazing. Isn't it a riot? It's like this weird cognitive dissonance i find happens mm -hmm. just a DD tangent where because fantasy fiction is so like popular in the modern era and because like all of this stuff is so kind of ubiquitous on tv and movies it feels very contemporary the mm -hmm. idea of like grown adults talking about ghoulies and right. goblins but we forget that like this stuff is like timeless right right these are like mythologies that are thousands of years old and in a wor world that is like does not have imax theory of Christopher Nolan movies, uh -huh. like you, you, yeah, you're gonna tell stories about goblins and ghoulies, Ariel. Mm -hmm. Like that's entertainment, you know. It just feels so out of place, but yeah. also like reflectively, it's like, oh no, of course, this is what they would be talking about, dude. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very funny to me. Yeah, something that does not feel out of place is the name Stormy for the gentleman who gives him the weather report. I just think that's so genuinely wholesome and hilarious. Uh, and as we already said before, there's a lot of fog. Like you said, it's, it's you know, foggy Europe, England specifically. And then there's discussion of like, why can't we take off? Oh, it's fog. There could be a cow on the runway. The cow would accordion us, which I don't know. I question the physics, but whatever. They're the pilots um there there's a lot of uh once again hurry up and and waiting which we've seen in these series very stressful you know it conveys a different kind of stress that anticipatory anxiety and again like there's such cognitive dissonance for us when we look at these planes we see these like behemoths these gigantic constructs hurtling through the air carrying thousands of pounds of untold destruction but they're really flimsy dude like yeah. i mean especially in the construction here you're talking about like less than probably quarter inch quarter inch like sheet metal the like rivets it's all like aluminum Stop frames tell me that uh, like, I mean, it's a little different now. Again, like I have a real close personal friend in the aircraft maintenance industry, which is like a very tough job. You guys mm -hmm. just remember, like, as we're critiquing the modern state of like aircraft maintenance and commercial flights around the world in January 2024. It's not the mechanics. It's the CEOs. It's always the CEOs, by the way. This, um, this feels right to me, what you're saying. <laughs> it is. It's always the CEOs, dude. It's always the bottom line. But at the end of the day, like a cow is an incredibly dense object. Like they, as somebody that lives in the country, this is like a little like bit of urban myth that gets passed around all the time that like the most dangerous thing to hit in your car is a pig because of how dense and low it is. Like it will flip your car over, you know, yeah. it will destroy you irrevocably. And like a cow would shatter through the front of that plane. Like if you're really paying attention to these B-17s, the nose is glass, 
the cockpit is up above the nose of the ship and they have a big glass dome with the machine gun turret on the front of that thing. Yeah. Like that cow's coming into the plane with you. Just so shoot, the, the, shoot the cow. <laughs> well, that one guy's ready. What does he say? Peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut jam. Butter, jam. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what a violent sandwich. <laughs> Yeah, it was very dramatic. That's a very dramatic interpretation mm-hmm. of this guy's peanut butter sandwich, Ariel. I don't know if I get it, but yeah, don't hit cows in your planes. I promise not to. I can't even drive. Um, so let's see what else happens. Crosby is, I have to give him full credit because he's doing so well he's aging so beautifully in his career he is down to not vomiting now he is just doing the breaths in the bag this is progress rich this is what an adult who has mostly somewhat acclimated to this horrible wartime uh, situation looks like that's what we call growth Ariel. I have to say, I got to give it to Anthony Boyle, the actor playing Crosby. Like, I don't know this guy. He's, he's full band of brothers energy to me in terms of like an actor that I'm meeting on this show and watching. And just in three episodes, the way that he's carrying himself, uh, just carrying, carrying the show, frankly, in some scenes, (laughs) in certain ways, I think for sure. But I think that he really shows this shift in Crosby of like, all right, I got to get my shit together. You know what I mean? It's that, I don't, I I mean, it's a cliche, but like he, he, he went from a boy, he became a man on those planes, Ariel. Like you feel that though, I think to a degree, the like hardship, certainly if they're coming into land in Africa and like spotlights back on him, pressures back on him, but to the point of like the personal emotional cost, as he's kind of reflecting back, I'm jumping ahead, but to the Crosby moments, like it's such a powerful moment of like i just want to get it right for the logs like when did so-and-so's plane go down i don't think anybody could have tracked it like there you feel crosby's the weight (sighs) that that this kid is taking on and the level of maturity that is being foisted on all of these guys part of what's so fascinating is that many of these these pilots were 21 22 years old they're like as young as they come and that's pretty consistent across all of the armed forces as we talk about like the recruitment efforts certainly of the united states but this was not a field with the wealth of experience in it and these were relatively new aircraft you know like they were really newly being developed to go fight this war and so you just had such a uh, uh, like cadre of these young men going through this impossible experience and Crosby carries that Anthony Boyle's doing a really good job with the material he's being given yeah absolutely I think he's 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 the person that I care about the most frankly at this point and um, he he's doing great it's great to see him growing like i said maybe one day he won't need the bags but that's perhaps an episode four or five situation um and i think like you said it's interesting that he's this he takes it on himself or he takes it upon himself and he is taking on that responsibility of like keeping the books as accurate as possible because that's a way most importantly it's not just the bureaucracy like that's a way that he can uh 
you know, respect these people who died. It was like the least we could do is get the freaking paperwork right. And these people who have like lost their lives in some cases senselessly. And it's really nice to see the other person who he asked, who's who is at first annoyed that he even posed the question. He's like, Cross, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. And he's like, I have to get it right. I have to get it right. And then he's like, he understands what's happening and he has the empathy to just kind of give Crosby a a best guess answer. It's that band of brothers element, right? Like the other guy is like realizes the weight of the question, the unspoken like implication of it. And just to like keep calling him out week after week, but it shades of your boy Carwood Lipton here of like yes. uh, one of the men becoming a leader amongst yes. these men, right? And like right. that story is really compelling, no matter like what venue we tell it in. We've told it again and again and again across history, and we'll continue to do so because it's always really compelling. We can feel something in that that, that really drives us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Cross uh, has the answer to a question that somebody else has, which is, what if the second and third squadrons are already in the air when... Uh, basically asking, like, what if the timing is off? And then Crosby's like, well, then this plan is shit. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of what's gonna, what it's going to turn out to be because the leaders get orders. I don't really, uh, to be clear, I don't think ultimately it matters in the sense of the why and the what compelled them to literally kind of throw the whole plan out the window and just like we need to get we cannot wait anymore there's probably like a small window of opportunity that they are working with but the idea that like the first group wouldn't be tied still in timing to the second and third group because that was the entire plan and the entire like we're going to think about this differently than we would normally is kind of insane to me but um Right before we get to that, though, uh, we have what might be our last scene with Kurt and Buck. And they have a moment with Meatball the dog. And uh, Kurt is like, I feel like this is a big one. No, stop talking. <laughs> stop talking. This is such a like a fin life finale type like conversation to have. Uh, and then the orders come in and they're leaving. And he, again, he says, I feel like this is a big one. And Buck says to him, I'll see you in Africa. I don't know. I don't know if you will. So rough. It's so rough. It like brings oh. me right back. Like I can't help but think of Tom Hanks watching these things of like Tom mm -hmm. Hanks to Kevin to Helen Hunt. I'll be right back. Uh, it's like, Stop. oh, I was God, just dude. watching Castaway the other night. I haven't seen this movie, Rich, in years. That's because you're a wise like, man. Aaron. Just like it's <laughs> just like Band of Brothers. Whenever it's on, I kind of get sucked into it. But it hadn't happened in forever. I watched like basically the whole movie and I was in tears at the end. And I'm like, oh, God, and that's not when you mentioned Tom Hanks. I thought you were going to make like a what's it called? A uh, Turner and Hooch joke. Yes. Um, but the fact that it was Castaway is crazy. I mean, you know, volleyball for the win, I guess is what I can say. Castaway is among my like top 10 favorite movies, probably. Like I you can't like aim closer at me than Castaway. Castaway, very closely related to Band of Brothers, as Tom Hanks was making Castaway, which notoriously he filmed over a year to grow the crazy uh Islander beard, you know. Great, and so yeah. the Band of Brothers guys talk about Tom Hanks showing up on set while they're at boot camp and he's got the psycho beard, and they're like, <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> 
guy, you know, and he's yelling at him like, we got to do a good job, you know. Uh-huh. Um, Who is that? Exactly. <laughs> it's it's not ironically an amazing movie. It should have won Best Picture to Gladiator. Gladiator was impressive, but Tom Hanks carried that thing alone. Nonetheless, um, I, I, you know, it's a it's the weight of it man you really like feel it and i think that barry keoghan does such a good job while i'm hyping up anthony boyle um we're like i'm really having a hard time with the characters ariel like bander Mm -hmm. brothers by episode three there's 15 guys that i can name that i'm interested in here i've got three guys and two of them are named buck and bucky you know what i mean (laughs) And then you got two of them are basically the same person, so. right? And then you got Crosby, and you could feel that level of like elevation for Crosby, right? Yes. Like Buck and Bucky are majors, they're leaders, they're not like mm-hmm. among the rank and file of these guys. They're not a peanut butter machine gunner or or babyface who doesn't understand what the planes are made of. And so in that way, Barry Keoghan, like Curtis Biddick, like man, he feels like an everyman. I teased the accent a little bit last time, but he uh-huh. feels like one of the rank and file guys even though yeah. like he's a pilot and he's flying and he's like the you know the the aircraft commander is technically like one of the terms he's in charge of the 10 guys on his plane you you feel that he's not one of the big responsible guys he's the guy that asks why is that line going all the way africa you know of like <laughs> what's going on what are we doing here you know and, and his performance aerial, like mm-hmm. as they come over the treetops, you you feel that he just wants to get his friend down alive. He yeah. won't jump off the plane because it's going to mean this guy's definitely dead. And everybody else is telling him, dude, he's dead already. Like he's not making it to the ground. You got to jump. Come on, Kirk. Yeah. And he was able to land the crashed plane already. So you feel that we as TV viewers have been so inundated with fake out deaths that I believe he's going to land the plane. Right. There's just no way that a plane going in our estimation as viewers and the way they're presenting it going, quote unquote, so slowly, even though it is all happening very fast, would have a landing that violent. There's just no it does not enter to your point. It does not enter my brain at all. And then I see the flames and I'm like. He's okay though, right? (laughs) I mean, I am too. I'm in the same spot. I don't mean to be like speaking about it as though it's a foregone conclusion. We'll see what episode four holds. Mm -hmm. But just to me, he's coming through the treetops. And we've seen this scene a thousand times, man, Uh of like the planes crashing. They're coming down through the treetops. Oh my God. uh." And then they land the plane and everybody climbs out because they have their seatbelts on and like it's Mm -hmm. all good, you know? And and Kyogen's performance, Ariel, it's the smallest line that mm-hmm. we've gotten of like all three episodes so far and it's the most powerful to me he just goes oh god and the plane hits the ground and it's yeah. just a fireball of an explosion it's like oh man oh god is right kurt you know like i don't know i hope kurt's alive i hope that buck gets back from africa and like finds his buddy but like i, I, I saw yeah. what i saw you know my, my brain many... is like telling me that you don't know, walk away from that right you know? yeah so. there's logic and then there's emotion and how many times can he be calling triumphantly alive from scotland at that strange right farmer's house like how right and he have it it just really struck home. me yeah. the juxtaposition of like this scene with modern media Ariel and mm-hmm. the way that like our expectations as a modern audience is like, Oh yeah, he's got this, man. He's out at the treetops. We're in good shape. Right. He he's done this already. We saw it like literally last week. So yeah. the, the, 
it's not like a subversion of expectations, even though it is, but like we should expect this ending badly. Like right. him walking away is the exception, not the rule. Yes, there. it is. So, it is the, the exception. Um, I, you know, we get the line from, their commanding officer we already know before they're getting into this that like this first wave second wave third that's out the window that's no longer a thing for whatever inexplicable reason and these and they didn't even tell the men so it's like they keep looking out for the other waves of planes and that's not going to happen and his line is the 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 real you know whatever is whoever is in charge of the majors uh, he says, and this is just, unfortunately, you know, one of those cases of a random person who I don't really feel any emotional attachment to says, we're sending them straight to hell alone. And that's what we see. We see it with what we already talked about with Kurt's plane going down and like, oh God, he might be dead. We see it with, uh, this poor guy, Quinn, who will then at the end of the episode land safely, although at a terrible cost because Babyface, who I have never met is stuck we already saw this is like Chekhov's uh dome right of like somebody else stuck in a previous episode in that like turret dome on the bottom of the plane and it's babyface and Quinn everybody else has has left this plane because it's going down and Quinn is genuinely wholeheartedly trying to get babyface out of that thing and he can no longer he can't do it it's not budging the crank is stuck whatever it is two people's force is not allowing this thing to open and Quinn has to choose himself over Babyface, and he gets out of the plane literally with like zero time to spare. He the, jumps out of the plane, and the plane explodes. The way they show the G's throwing him off, man, like as the plane's starting uh, to plummet, and yeah. now he's got to climb. He's you know? stuck. Yeah, he's like stuck on the ceiling at one point or on the bottom. That was wild, wild. And it's it makes Kurt's choice that much more powerful, right? We get this like wicked juxtaposition. I mean, it's the thing of like yeah. on airplanes, we get it now as commercial passengers. You got to put your air mask on first. You got to put your oxygen on first yeah. to help the person next to you. And that sense of like, you know, personal responsibility. Like, sure, he could have stayed and died with baby face, but to what end? You know, like really, like that's what he had to do. You have to to make that choice, and that's an impossible choice that that guy's got to live with for the rest of his life you know like th that struck me as a really um just enunciating kurt's decision that much more yeah. to be like no we're landing the plane man. Yeah. <laughs> you know like i'm putting this plane down he's coming off of this thing in one piece like you you feel that because of the personal relationships like yeah. baby face and the peanut butter gunner they didn't really have a relate you know they're two guys on the crew together but like we didn't we weren't invested in that at all yeah. so yeah it's impossible and and again like the scale of it like we see it on one plane but like how many other planes are going through circumstances exactly like this right throughout this movement you know and, and i think that part of it is conveyed for me absolutely and just like the very very haunting cries of Babyface, once he understands that quinn is now leaving him he's like please please quinn don't leave me don't leave me and it's like and like you said, it's an impossible choice. He really did try to help him. But now the the interesting, at least narrative choice is he survives. And then now what happens to him and how does he go on and live with that both in the short term and in the long term? Um, but uh, Buck is in the school of not abandoning ship. He is not going to abandon it he says we're gonna take it we're gonna take it whatever these damn german bombers throw at us 
and it's uh it's another juxtaposition kind of what you said and he it kind of in the moment at least to me felt like oh god this is the wrong decision like now everything that i have seen up until this point is telling me that like maybe buck is wrong and this is going to get them all killed him deciding to do this yeah i'm with you it felt really dangerous in the moment so you know look these things are standing on the backs of giants in band of brothers in the pacific and i don't mean to like keep comparing and contrasting right comparison is the theft of joy area the, the but, marketing wants us to be comparing it because they yeah. won't shut up about <laughs> this is from yeah. the same executive producers yeah yeah, it's true. Uh, and so I think in that way, like we, I, I talked to you a little bit, I don't remember if it was in the preview, we talked about it last week about Austin Butler and like my presuppositions about him as an actor. Like mm -hmm. he's a guy that I have rooted in like this teen fantasy drama on MTV, dude. That's like so ridiculous. Like I would follow Austin Butler to the, to the depths of hell at this point, Ariel, like mm -hmm. he gets me. It's this moment. It's like Buck in this moment. Like this is the Dick Winters follow me shit that I am here for call me like a basic bitch, but it like nails me, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I get it as like his CEO or is in the the, the co-pilot seat of like, all right, we're out. We're taking too yeah. much damage. We got a dead hydraulic line. We got a bail. Like yeah. you, they're, he's looking for the first opportunity to get off this plane right? The plane means death to fly through this shrapnel into the enemy aircraft fire. This is death. We will die. If we jump out, maybe at least we'll be captured and can be like prisoners of war under the Geneva convention aerial, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're probably going to live if we jump out of the plane and him buck is a leader, man. He's a, he's a combat group leader. He's a major of this, this group. And he's like, no, we're not going anywhere. No. Like the plane can still fly. We're going to still fly. And that's it. And it's not out of like, you know, any, like there is this element of like, you're making this decision for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Is this your pride? Is mm -hmm. this because you're like the hot shot pilot? Right. Is this survivor's guilt? Right. But I think that the part of it that is actually noble and the positive that's happening here is like, no, it's leadership, man. Yeah. You know, like there's there's part of it that like all that male machismo bullshit that like we can really like poke holes in a little bit. Mm -hmm. You need it in this environment, right? You need yeah. these guys to see that like he's still there. The point of like is box playing still back there? It's beat to shit and trailing behind, but he's still there. He's still and there, that yeah. like instills hope, man. Yeah. Like when you go back in the records and read about these movements, they talk about the loss of individual pilots as like massive because these guys have these, you know these red baron kind of like uh reputations mm -hmm. you know like these individual men are able to stand as like legends amongst their battalion where like every time you get in the plane you're flying into death right you expect that you're going into the gates of hell so i think to have a guy be like no dude we're not ditching the plane it's important in a way yeah. No, for sure. And I think that point is, is very keenly felt, uh, like you said, when other people are asking about Buck's ship and are, uh, what are they, they call it a fort. I believe that is in my estimation, like I'll call it to the flying fortress. That it is. Yes, yeah. he is. Um, but you know, is his, is he still with us? Is our leader still with us? Yes. Okay. Well then there must be some reason why we're all still here as well and must continue. And he's like, 
we're gonna continue on and we're gonna make this is like it i have never felt farther from africa than i did on their plane when they are trying to get to it but eventually they do make it they go a little slower they're like starting to, they're starting to make like decisions right they're cutting uh the fuel consumption eventually they're getting much closer and they're literally throwing things off the plane including ammunition including these things that are supposed to protect them vital pieces of the of the internal uh infrastructure of the plane are going out the window just to keep them in the plane or to keep them in the air for longer and it works this is like i felt like i was playing zelda where it was like you have these fans that like last a certain amount of time and then after that you're just gliding and they do reach that point where they're just gliding it's like okay if the wind can only keep us up wait no don't put the wheels down yet because they will create more drag and they will slow us down we have to wait for the last possible minute this is crazy crazy stuff they basically almost make it to that runway that we can see from the window and then Bucky at the end with like the hilarious line of, wow, you flew all the way to Africa and you couldn't even like get <laughs> Dude, it's so good. The whole like the bomb sites, our bomb sites were over water. Don't worry about it. These bomb sites were really important. Mm-hmm. We got the kind of Crosby narration at the beginning, the dropping of the ball turret that's going to, yeah. that killed Babyface, you know, like it's not the same one. It's one on Buckship, but like right. that feels so impactful, right? Mm-hmm. You feel that in a way of like, oh my God. Ah, dude they're letting go of everything important now again they're like really unlikely to like engage in any kind of combat at that point but like, yeah right to your point of like africa's never been farther like in certain and we're not in kansas anymore toto joke there somewhere there's mm-hmm. something to like workshop there but it, it, you feel it man right it's like the plane's like shredded dude after yeah. buck like looking at the damage landing last time and now we're still in the air with it and now we're really thinking about this plan here all of a sudden it's like wait wait after we fly through the german flak now we're going to take these beat to ship planes and fly to africa are you kidding yeah, me dude like it, just, the, it's, it feels wild it feels wild that there was no like plan b like where else they could land but i mean it, it like makes sense you know it's so like would throw off the tactics like mm-hmm. this this extraction of information is so important mm-hmm. i mean we take it for granted that we live literally in the information age right where with the push of a button like i can get information about an air force commander from 80 years ago but mm-hmm. like it just is so precious and vital all the kind mm-hmm. of little bits even when they're ditching the plane like destroy the plan destroy the, yeah right? i was just about to say that was very interesting to me of like and made so much sense and you know that happens a little bit in the pacific when they're like okay destroy the this the plans and then get rid of the stuff like we don't want the enemy to know anything more than they already know especially about the way we operate so that makes sense but it's a thing to your point it's a thing that they have to be cognizant of in the most harrowing circumstances like yes jump out of the plane so that you can survive but also destroy those plans first they're actually in a way more important than you unfortunately and again like just going in my little like deep dive of of, like the actual statistics which are a thing that like i know you talked about a bit before we started recording like we feel like are missing a little bit here like Mm -hmm. 
so many of these pilots are in the prisoners of war aerial. Like they're literally in the way the Banner brothers and the, and the paratrooper regiment talked about, like we're we're jumping in behind enemy lines. We're mm-hmm. literally designed to be surrounded, but they were designed to be surrounded and punch a hole on their way out. And to your point earlier, they're with the battalion of other foot soldiers, right? Yeah. These individual crews of planes, you've got 10 guys parachuting into Belgium. Like where are they going to land? You know? Yeah. And the reality of like, we get, we track that little bit of a story of like the the people on the ground but an incredible number of these guys ended up prisoners of war and were interrogated grievously i was brought back in my mind watching this aerial to the 2014 angelina jolie movie i think it's called unbroken that tracks like these four um pilots who uh-huh. get who, who like crash in the pacific okay. uh and they end up like on a boat and end up prisoners of war in japanese uh prisoner of war camps which is like a very different circumstance than the german ones but nonetheless like that in its own right is like holy cow that's an ordeal right mm-hmm. and that's like such another part of the experience of these guys like they're trained to be pilots and to be bombers and to be machine gunners but the reality is like all the soldiering that you need to have instilled into you if part of your experience is going to be to like drop alone behind enemy lines and then have to like get your way out through improvisation or deal with imprisonment at the hand of of your enemy like it's insane man the kind of circumstances and the show definitely gets into it i just want to say quickly uh to your point yeah that is something i said i really wish we got at the end of the episode, you know, we're not going to get probably the real life people like we were spoiled getting in Band of Brothers, but just a title card with the, you know, on that day we lost so and so people like I it just it grounds it more for me emotionally. We get, I guess, the show trying to do that with uh, Buck saying, you know, I lost four forts. How many of us made it? Eleven out of twenty one. Um, you know, and then they're talking about Kurt, wondering if Kurt made it. Oh, God, how horrible that is. But the this guy, Quinn, who we meet, who made this harrowing, horrible choice to save his own life and, you know, was trying to save Babyface, but ultimately had to choose himself. He lie, he lands in Belgium behind uh, enemy question mark lines and he encounters this farmhouse with a family. They, you know, ask him if he's a, if he's German. No, he's American. He's not lying about that. And then this was. You know, to the point of like this riddle that we had earlier with the goblins, I kind of felt like there was something tricky about this. It wasn't just a black and white answer there because the guy says to him, you know, they do give him food, thankfully, which is really kind. Um, But he's given the chance to choose between surrender and escape. If he surrenders and under the Geneva, this is what the guy says to him under Geneva conventions, you know, you go to prison, but you would probably survive this war. If you try to escape and you're caught, you could be executed. Which do you choose? Now he opens with, I buried the lead. He opens with saying, you're trying to sneak back to England, right? I can get you, I can help you do that. But I feel like the idea here that he, like it felt to me like a trick, like the right answer is Mm -hmm. actually, I want to escape Mm -hmm. to England with you, but also don't kill me. Like I felt like there was a little bit of a riddle component to this question. 
Oh, a million percent. Yeah. I think, I, I think it's like a really astute observation. Like I hadn't thought about it until I was out away from the episode a little bit and I was like, Oh, right. The goblins. Like, I, I think you're spot on. There is this element. We're definitely behind enemy lines. Again, Germany had just like pushed so far West, right. They stormed over like all of Europe. So, right. so, you know, uh, the blitzkrieg was like the thing. They just ran roughshod over everything. Right. And this dynamic does feel like exactly that. Like if you're, german spy you do probably want to get back to the germans you know oh yeah take me back like i want to be a prisoner geneva conventions i want to survive but there is that element of like are you really dedicated to this are you in it for yourself are you a coward there's so much unspoken here and it's so impossible to know what the right answer is and and we watched this guy make this impossible moral choice as he's faced with like this unanswerable moral dilemma of what to do with baby face in the turret like after having done that what's he going to do is he going to choose to survive again like because could we blame him if he did do you know like there's such complexity to that and just to stop down again and think about being faced with that choice as a 21 year old kid who like you know doesn't know peanut butter from 50 caliber ammunition like you know it's just it really resets the scale of where we're at here and um the whole dynamic of like what was going on for so many of these pilots. Because this is again one guy. How many of those planes did we watch ditch? Right, know? right. He right. is like standing in like a lot of these stories across like all three series. A person or a group of people is standing in for a really large group of of uh of servicemen who went through similar things. Yep. And just to double down on what you're saying, you know, as we're now 20 years out from the making of Bander Brothers, like, you, you know, uh, one of our frequent listeners, Catherine on the Discord, had mentioned like she's really feeling the lack of the talking heads. Mm-hmm. I've seen it in a couple places on Reddit of like the critiques. I think during the Pacific, they really try to use Sledge and Leckie's narration mm-hmm. to help root us in. And I thought we were going to do that with Crosby a little bit. Yeah. I thought thought Crosby would been be, a little bit. I thought he would be narrating more though, mm-hmm. uh, because I'm a hundred percent with you. Like I'm really missing some informational title cards. I would love having some of the context here. And again, just to call back to like this air and space article, um, it, you know, part of what they talked about is that so many of the details in the bombers and amongst like the costuming and the crews, they talked about like literally the production bought the co- Coats from like a leather manufacturer in England that still right, makes right. the same bomber coats, you know, wow. like all of this stuff is spot on, but we're missing some of the big picture strategy and why the Americans chose this daytime bombing campaign. Right. It was this idea. It was very intentional attrition that while we would suffer catastrophic losses to our air troops, we would ultimately like cut the uh, duration of the war profoundly. Mm-hmm. And in review, I think it's widely agreed that it worked worked and we did a really good job that's part of why like it's looked at as this kind of brilliant military campaign but we don't have any of that within the confines of the show and yeah. i feel just a little unmoored from the date and the time like we're dealing with these yeah. span of time of like yeah. how long has it been what's going mm-hmm. on like I would like a little bit more to root us into the moment mm-hmm. even if it's not like 
in canon storytelling, right? right? Like it doesn't have to be Crosby narrating it to us. The cards at the end would convey an incredible amount of weight as to like the loss of life, the number of planes, the amount of people yeah. that were captured. Like I want some of that for sure. Ariel. Yeah. Cause the, the dialogue is trying to do, you know, the line largest Aramata ever assembled. Like that's not, that's not a coincidence that that's there, right? That is very intentional giving us that information, but then follow it up. We need the period at the end of the sentence. Like what, so how successful was it? Because from my estimation, it wasn't that successful. Like it, they, you know, I guess ultimately, yes, the mission that they had, which was to bomb some of these targets, which is obviously very important and very uh, influential to the way that the Germans do this, you know, make their, create their, their weapons that's all well and good but like these shows have always done a good job at like driving home the point about the loss of life and it's these real people the whole point of making them is like feeling the emotion of the real people whether they survive or whether they perish of like what these people went through and what it meant and what it meant then what it means now like i think these are all the uh the conversations that the show wants us to be having and maybe they decided you know it's too much information i say let the viewer decide i agree you know in a show like this i think like most of the i've seen it kind of like lambasted a little bit or like uh, the the kind of backhanded compliment of like this is premier dad tv right. you know? <laughs> and like i think it probably is but i think a lot Eat your of heart people... out yellowstone <laughs> yeah right right uh i love my dutton rich i think that like it is premier dad tv you know dad's a lot of history channel where's the history of the history channel mm -hmm. but so i think that like most of the people showing up for this would be here for it and you could at least put it onto the end where it can be part of the postscript of right and then people the just script. tune it out anyway like okay exactly. i don't have to pay attention to that if you don't want to and we like hyper engaged podcasters could have a little bit more uh gristle to chew on at the end right. of our we could pause it take a screenshot and then digest it as slowly as we need to too true too true oh, yeah yeah we'll see i mean we you know we're no cows with seven stomachs speaking of digestions i'm not sure if that <laughs> figure is right you think uh, cows like peanut butter and jam they probably <laughs> i have to say that based on how i understand cows to be chewing they would probably have a hard time with the peanut butter would probably oh, find it yeah. delicious but would probably like pose a serious health risk to their breathing and <laughs> I'm not a veterinarian, but that's just my estimation. Protect your cows, people. They're not dogs. Uh, Don't yeah. leave the peanut butter just out for the cows to eat. Okay. <laughs> really highly irresponsible. Get your peanut butter out of the cow patties. You guys, Get what are you it doing? out of there? Um, I think we've digested enough of the episode. Um, I think we have the final note I'll say is like, mm -hmm. I really appreciate um, Buck landing the whole like coming in and landing in Africa. There's it's incredible to me that this show can create such drama from the small stuff, mm -hmm. right? After yeah. the spectacle of nightmare battle, the point where like the one other scene, like, um, uh, it's Barry Keoghan with the oh god coming over the trees, yes. but then it's Buck like taking in the the, the carnage as yeah. the body hits the wing of the plane, yeah. and it's like oh my god, oh god, man. the body! I almost forgot the first time I watched it, I did not clock that at all. And then the second time I rewatched it, I was like, oh god, it's such a scene, man. That but was an is... old body that is no longer in existence. It's horrible. And then to watch him just kind of have to turn around and be like, 
okay, okay, let's continue the mission. Back to business. You have to do when you're a leader, yeah. You know, and then the other note that, like, again, with like these uh these FW190s, like the way that like they wait for the bombers to level out and go into autopilot before they begin bombing, that the that the like FWs drop in when when the the like fortresses are like on these stable planed out positions in the easiest possible targets you're gonna get. They're decelerating to like drop the payload, but just to the drama of it all after like the absolutely nightmare spectacle of the battle i felt i think more tension as a viewer but with buck trying to land the plane in africa and that's like pretty impressive they're doing a really good job just managing like how stressful the little shit is for these guys um in a really really like powerful way i think and i just want to call it out before we get too much further ariel uh but our boy the mechanic uh lemon what's yeah. his name don lemon i don't yeah, think it's yeah. really done lemon lemon yeah we we didn't note it last time, but I think that this is our like we're, we're twenty years from now when we're looking back at Masters of Air, we're going to be pointing at Lemon of like, and can you believe that Rafferty Law Scott started on Masters of Air? Uh, this kid looks exactly like Jude Law, and it was uh, making me nuts until I realized like, oh, it's Jude Law's son, and like I, that's why he looks like Jude. Wow, that makes <laughs> so much sense. I did like, not recognize. Just want to like flag all. it now before we get yeah. too much further. No, and that's another thing of like I'm. I think that's part of the magic that's missing for me is like the the freedom that uh I mean this only respectfully that a no name unknown actor has yes. in disappearing into a role yes. versus an Austin Butler or a, a Barry Keoghan of yep. like having to kind of work through the the their known uh you know entity status to kind of present and cut through to give us a character so you know i think crosby and uh lemon lemons can uh can be there can be that for us and hopefully in 10 years when they make the fourth iteration of whatever this whatever the series will be we can be like yeah look at that we were right tanks probably right tanks <laughs> we're gonna do sherman tanks Underwater, we have not no, done the know. armor I division. I think that oh, would yeah. be that would be way too tense for me. I can't with the I can't navy? With the submarines. It's too much. I'm down with the navy though. Down with the navy. Let's get some Dunkirk action kicking. You Ooh, know? Yeah, I'm yeah, ready yeah, for sure. it. I'm ready definitely, for it. We can do some navy. Maybe the navy ship finds Tom Hanks in Castaway, and then we have like our universe kind of folding in on itself. I'm just saying, I have ideas. Uh, get Stephen King to write this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Go to King. Castle Rock, baby. Steven Spielberg out. Steven <laughs> exactly. In. Spielberg out. King in. Let's get it. The King Interconnected Universe. The Dairy CU. Uh, yeah. The real nightmarish underbelly. Of, I don't know where I war. am anymore, Ariel. I'll beat the shit lagging behind, and I'm talking about Stephen King at the end of the Masters of Air podcast. <laughs> so I think we have covered it. I think, yeah, I think this is it for us. Uh, we'll be back next week to discover, or yes, to discover how we feel about episode four, part four, as they are calling themselves, as they did in uh, no real episode titles, as uh, as they did in the Pacific. Although it is interesting that on IMDb they have episode titles, so I think it might be one of those cases where like they uh, post show they give the episode names for like the DVDs and things like that. But for the episodes airing proper, they don't have names. But frankly, part four is a lot easier to remember. So join us to come back next week for our coverage of part four. But until then, Rich, what else have you got going on? 
Uh, I'm at DM Philly and all the places on the internet. You go catch me on YouTube. I got a bunch of VODs of the stuff I'm doing at twitch.tv slash DM Philly, where I play a bunch of D&D with our friends, some post-show recaps, regulars. We're looking to ramp up again pretty soon here in the new year. Uh, go follow me on those places at Twitter to keep an eye on what I'm doing. Uh, that's pretty much me. Fantastic. I am, let's see, wondering what I'm going to say. I'm covering Six Feet Under with Dr. Amanda. We're you know, almost halfway through the second season. That's been really fun to revisit another early 2000s gem and uh, also covering movies every week with Grace. We took a week off because there's not that much going on. Uh, but, you know, that's always a thing. We'll for sure be back next week with some movie coverage. And I think that's everything. I'm on Twitter at that other Ariel. Like I said, come back next week for episode four, part four. Until then, bye-bye.